And tonight we talk about the misuse of patients by psychiatrists, by psychologists, by yet other practitioners who don't have those credentials, have neither MD nor PhD, but presume all the same to render some kind of uh, therapeutic service to people in some state of active despair or disorganization. My guests are uh, three eminent professionals, one a, a lawyer, one a psychiatrist, one a psychologist. The lawyer is an old friend, Zachary Bravos, who is um, uh, the head of his own law firm based in Wheaton, and originally received, or rather got a judgment, he didn't get all the money, some $7.5 million in a settlement related to a false memory case, of which we will speak shortly. Dr. Herzl Spiro is the former director of mental health for Milwaukee County uh, and is the former president of the Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital. He remains in private practice uh, at, uh, based in Madison, I believe, in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee actually. Uh, and Dr. Roger Hatcher is a clinical psychologist, a PhD psychologist uh, uh, practicing in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, Zachary, let's go directly to this case that I've just mentioned. It is uh, emblematic of uh, many, many cases. In fact, Dr. Spiro has been involved as a medical consultant giving testimony in various other cases concerning people who have had false memories about sexual abuse stirred up in them by practitioners who probably aren't pure frauds but, but share a kind of a delusional system and think that there's a lot of uh, sexual abuse of children going on, and that produces terrible effects which show up later in life. And they have implanted, we now know, false memories of such sexual abuse. You can suggest all sorts of things to patients, and if you have the authority of a psychiatrist or a psychologist, patients, many patients will buy what you are suggesting. Well, that's correct, Milk, because essentially they are seeking help. They go to mental health professionals because they have a need for competent mental health services. And when those competent services are not provided, sometimes they can go badly astray, as happened in this case recently. Now, this case, let's talk about it, but to what degree is it representative of what happened in this country over the last 15 or 20 years? It is, uh, it's probably the best example of what has happened during that time period for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it has all of the classic elements that you just talked about. It has the search for unremembered sexual abuse, the eventual recovery of those supposed memories, uh, really rapid uh, de-escalation in the functioning of the patient, eventually getting entwined into thinking that they have aspects or other personalities that they never knew about and then as this tumbles forward through the years uh, the the abuse so-called abuse memories becoming more and more horrific culminating in satanic type abuse satanic abuse no less but how many people have been caught up in this uh, craziness well it's uh, it's difficult to give good numbers on that but it's it's clear to me that this would number into into the thousands i'm sure across and the country. in recent years there have been many malpractice litigations like the one that you've just concluded that's correct uh, which have been brought we'll hear shortly i think from dr spiro about some others in which he has been an expert witness but let's look at this one case there is a particular psychiatrist who uh, was sued that's correct and by name he is dr bennett braun who for quite a while was a psychiatrist at rush presbyterian rush st luke's hospital that's right what's the story 
Well, he had a unit there for a period of time in which he, he thought he was treating patients that were displaying uh, multiple personality disorder. And the story with this particular patient is, is kind of follows a pattern that I've seen in other cases in which she initially sought treatment for depression. And when that depression was not treated, instead when the focus was on this, these so-called abuse memories, she got much, much worse. During the course of this treatment, she was actually an inpatient at the psychiatric hospital for a continuous period of almost four years. Uh, during that time, she um, changed her name on several occasions in order to escape from the cult whom she thought was pursuing her. Most significantly, uh, she was convinced and encouraged in this belief by her treaters that she had already borne several children that had been sacrificed by the cult. And in order to prevent that from occurring again, she uh, underwent a sterilization procedure. She went under, underwent a tubal ligation and, of course, now has forfeited any possibility of bearing children. Now, this whole history uh, of her, uh, her injurious experiences, uh, sexual abuse and, in fact, impregnated and the, uh, the children uh, aborted or born? And well, actually, Mel, she's never born any children. I know, but the story that was yeah. developed and which was sold to her, was that story something that the practitioners really believed or, uh, or were they just faking it or what goes on? How does this kind of shared delusion develop? Obviously, I can't get into somebody else's mind, but I have no good reason to believe that this was um, something that the treaters did not believe. In other words, I think they really yeah. truly believe this. And when you come from a mindset of believing that there are terrible hidden traumas and conspiracies at work in the world, I think the tendency is to uncover them even though they don't exist. Now what's happened in the clinical psychotherapeutic professions uh, which has led psychiatrists with MDs, psychologists with PhDs, other people without all of that uh, degree of credential but still practicing some mode of psychotherapy. What has led them to engage in such fantasies and to impose those fantasies upon their patients? Dr. Spiro. Well, one is dealing in a field that has a great deal of uncertainty where it's very important to get thorough evaluation, have a clear treatment plan that's evidence-based, and be working in a system where there's peer review and where you're re-examining what you've done constantly. That system is hopelessly broken right now. Uh, and so that uh, in the past 20 years, we've seen the general <clears throat> decay of mental health services, their general unavailability, and the greatest crime is not the malpractice victims who are, are terrible. It's terrible it happened. The greatest crime is the homeless who are probably outside this building right now, 50% of whom have untreated severe psychiatric disorder. Which well, that's when treated. the governor of this state, as did the governors of many states, uh, managed a great budgetary uh, restriction by emptying out the mental hospitals and sending people out on the streets, supposedly under the guise of they're getting community treatment or community uh, uh, facilitation to assist them in coming back to life. But we essentially dumped the psychotics off the back wards of the state hospitals onto the streets. That started a good 20 years ago, didn't it? It started with the idea of the least restrictive environment mm -hmm. so people would receive... That was the rationale. 
No, I, there was a real desire to treat people effectively with the maximum of dignity and freedom. But that was exploited for quick gain, and we had uh, people who instead move to our other pocket and move these patients into our prison system where they also cost us huge amounts yeah. of money and into the welfare system when they could be productive members of society with treatment. You started with a case of severe malpractice. I think that grows partially out of a population of people who are looking for effective treatment and are being denied it because of a political and economic system which simply won't do what should be done. But in that context, a certain set of ideas about uh, childhood sexual abuse producing uh, producing consequences 20 or 30 years later through a screen of repressed memory of the sexual abuse, those ideas took hold on the part of many practitioners. What's the source of that model of, uh, of, of psychological injury? Is there a particular person who first formulated this as a possibility? Was it Sigmund Freud himself? Well, of course. Uh, the the uh, history of this business of recovered uh, memory can be traced directly back to uh, analytical theory, psychoanalytical theory that was developed originally a hundred years ago by Sigmund Freud and then fine-tuned and developed over the past hundred years. I've got to say, though, Mel, that, that, uh, the, the, the pro that that's a simplistic answer. Uh, the truth is that um, this particular movement is an example, it's a horrid example, of how the misinterpretation of classical psychoanalytical theory crept in to the profession and various parts of the profession from the outside. It didn't. It didn't start within the field. It started outside of the field. And the movement and we're talking bought. about. The movement we're talking about is the focus on repressed memory yes. of childhood sexual abuse. Yes, that's correct. It started from outside what? Outside the psychiatric realm? Yes, it did. It did. It started in out in the field. It started uh, by uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned people who uh, believed that uh, child sexual abuse is a is a horrible problem. Who do you have in mind? Those two women who wrote that book that had so much influence. I, I think that that's uh, re emblematic. Of who were they? What was their uh, name? And I don't. I don't. Uh, uh, Bass and Davis. Ellen yeah. Bass. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the title of the book was what? Uh, it's called The Courage to Heal. Exactly. And these yeah. people were not mental health professionals, no. At Milt. And and the other thing that went along with that is a series of popular literature uh, that started essentially with a book called The Three Faces of Eve. There was a movie with that. Yes, of course. And and that was uh, uh, expanded upon in a, in a book called Sybil, in a movie called Sybil, uh -huh. uh, who was supposedly a multiple. We now know, by the way, one of her own treating psychiatrists says that Sybil was never, never a multiple personality. Well, we now even have some strong suspicion that multiple personality is an invented diagnostic category, which may not correspond with anything that happens in real life. That's my belief. Uh, my, I believe it only occurs when it's created by improper therapy. The fact is you only get multiple personality diagnosed in this country. You don't get it anyplace else. It does seem to be a social phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, then there was another book that came along called Michelle Remembers. This is a book that kind of capped everything off in terms of relating uh, child abuse, repressed memory, recovery of those memories with satanic cult abuse. And what appears to have happened is that there was a segment of the mental health community that became enamored with that whole concept. I'll bet you that when it comes to popular entertainments which have stirred up <clears throat> these continuing fantasies, the film Rosemary's Baby might have had a significant influence. I think it did. 
I think there was there was another influence that was very real, that there are a large number of children who are abused in the United States. To be sure, to be sure. In my experience of treating them, of treating them as adults, uh, they do have memories, and the whole repressed memory movement is something I've never the seen. The memories aren't repressed, they're I, there. I've never found it yeah. in my clinical practice, but I do want to uh, say that one of the things that drove many of the lay people who were involved was enormous concern about a continuing crime, and, and that is of, mm -hmm. of children who are starved and abused and of an inadequate way of caring for those children. And it led to very false conclusions, in my opinion, about how memories are stored. But nonetheless, we seem to have some national amnesia, uh, if I can put it that way, in terms of forgetting about people who are terribly hurt. You are, both of you, clinicians, and Zachary's a very experienced lawyer who's worked on matters of this sort. I'm a mere social psychologist, but I want to put a, an hypothesis to you, that we are the victims of the concepts that we reify and take to be representative of reality. And one such concept, which we trace back to Freud, though possibly one has to trace it way further back to Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim, otherwise known as Paracelsus, is that there is a large part of the mind which is, quote, unconscious. And then to Freud we trace the extra idea of repression. It may well be that that is almost as much a mythology as anything else that we sometimes believe for wrong reasons. But if you're convinced that a good part of your own life is not available to you, and can only be drawn out of the unconscious or out of the realm of repression by assistance, uh, through assistance from a professional, a psychiatrist, a psychologist doing therapy, then that puts that practitioner in the position of being able to implant all sorts of ideas in you, and you somehow, and he verifies that he's found evidence in your random associations or your dreams or whatever, that though these are memories you really have, even though you've stored them in the repressed sector of the unconscious. Not only have individual patients remembered their sexual abuse, but the so-called abusers, their parents, fathers, mothers, uncles, have been persuaded through similar procedures that though you don't remember it, Dad, there's evidence, not only from what your daughter says, but from what you now are sort of half reporting uh, as you struggle to comprehend the situation in which you find yourself now, there's evidence that you yourself were, in fact, an abuser, and some men have made confessions, false confessions, because memories of their being abusers have been implanted in them in a way that has persuaded them. A few have confessed in court and gone to prison. Paul Ingram, notably, in the state of, uh, of Washington. That someone was a sheriff or something? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He did that. And, and along with what you said, this has always struck me when I look at these kinds of cases. It's always struck me that if you can... If you can convince a person that there may have been terrible things that happened to them that they do not remember, then you've essentially compromised their own confidence in what they know. And once you've done that, you've opened the door to the mind to destroy it if you want to. And it may well be the case that the unconscious, as conceived in standard classic psychoanalytic lore, is as much a myth as it is a reality. I'm just a lawyer. <laughs> Let me jump in here. Uh, there, there's two I'm afraid you have to jump in after we stop for some commercials. I've been teasing you with some strong assertions. I want your reaction to them after we pause for these words. And we return to Dr. Herzl Spiro, former director of mental health for Milwaukee County, uh, an active psychiatrist in private practice in the state of Wisconsin. Dr. 
uh, Roger P. Hatcher, who is a clinical psychologist in practice in Aurora, Illinois, and Zachary Bravos, who is a lawyer uh, heading his own firm, which is based in Wheaton, and has had much involvement in litigations relating to false memory syndrome and the malpractice by those who uh, persuade patients that they were sexually abused when, in fact, they were not. But I was laying out a sort of a challenge concerning the uh, illusion of the theory of the unconscious itself and how, if that is believed, that makes patients and the accused parents of patients all the more prone to accept whatever the dumb uh, therapist tries to put into their heads. Well, I think that's, that's, that's true. The, um, the issue of repressed memory and repression in general was first articulated by Freud and has been a consistent uh, construct articulated over the last hundred years. It is one of those Freudian constructs or ideas that has been tested, and in fact, uh, uh, to the credit of scientific psychology, um, professional psychology did respond to this uh, 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 repressed memory problem and, and repressed abuse uh, issue that Zach is referring to with these patients. Memory researchers have looked at the issues of, of memory, and uh, I, I can summarize it in a sentence. Uh, it's the same sentence you used before. Uh, it's a it's bunk. Uh, there is no mm -hmm. scientific evidence of repressed memories. That there's is events evidence that occur. There's evidence that are then forgotten. To, to the contrary, much of it developed a few psychologists, but particularly Elizabeth Loftus. Elizabeth Loftus is Washington the example. University. Yes, yes, yeah. that's correct. Who's been on this program a few times? Yeah. Yeah, I think her contribution has has been central to the professional response to this uh, um, populist movement that uh, led to such uh, pain and suffering. I, I wanted to say something else to you. You know, you, you, you pointed out an important part of learning as well. Uh, that is that patients, uh, they, and it seems that the more desperate and, and ill-feeling they are, uh, are more vulnerable uh, to believing things that they have been told. And, and this is something that, uh, as you know, most social psychologists have learned a long time ago, uh, that you can make people do things. Oh, yes. By, by dint of your authority, and you can make them say things or believe things about others or themselves by telling them that these things are true or have occurred and so forth. Uh, you know, the Stanley Milgram studies back from the 60s we talked about a few minutes ago is just a terrific example. Talked about that off the air. That's uh, Milgram got people to deliver electric shocks to other, they weren't really doing that, but the subject who was delivering the shock believed that he was shocking somebody else. It was, in fact, an actor who was faking being electrically And shocked. they did so because the person telling them to do it... Was an authority. ...was an authority in a white lab coat. Exactly. You know, there's a wonderful irony here, because what we're discussing is how people have memory suggested to them that they then come to believe. And if we accepted the idea that all things being out of consciousness was just an incorrect reification, then it would be the the null hypothesis would be everything is in awareness and how could there be such a thing as a false memory i think we have to be more specific about what the research demonstrates mm -hmm. i think the research demonstrates that people do remember trauma that often the memory of trauma is somewhat distorted and that people are highly susceptible to suggestion it's easy to whip psychoanalysis for 1895 concepts. It's more difficult if you deal with what people in the field are saying right now. 
and it has much more to do with the distortion of memory, and it has nothing to do with the malpractice case that we opened with. And, and treating the two as equivalent is dangerous to your health. I'll buy that. But let's return for a moment to that malpractice case. We opened with the case of Dr. Braun of, what is it, Presbyterian? That's Rush Presbyterian. Rush Saint Presbyterian. Luke's, and also Saint Rush North Shore. Yeah. Uh, now, that case was, uh, you sued for the client and her family, I That's presume. Right. And uh, it was in litigation for rather a, a while, wasn't it? It was in litigation for a long time, not only by myself, but with my partner, Roger Kelly, and also mm -hmm. with the great Chicago law firm, Power, Rogers, and Smith, and specifically Todd Smith and Ken Merlino of that firm. And there we were fighting legal issues all that time, Mel. We were, we were, we were fighting the issues of the statute of limitations. Once we got by those issues, though, and once we were able to get to the case itself, it resolved quickly because we fortunately in that case had in some instances audio tape, in some instances videotape of actual sessions so we could actually see what was happening. That and was you saw this guy, this doctor, planting these memories. When I saw it, I was, I was horrified when I saw it. How did he do it? It's, it, is a very, it is a long process and it starts with, 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 with selling the patient on the idea that possibly something happened that they don't know about. And then, as you and discuss... She might say, I don't remember that, and he says, well, you're repressing the memory. Exactly. Uh, or it might be something like this. It might be, uh, you don't have to believe this, but let's just discuss this, uh -huh. take this for what it's worth. And then if you're, if you're dealing with issues of abuse, you're talking about them, then you're likely to have some dreams about abuse or it's to, it's, it's to occur to you in some other fashion. And then perhaps that, that dream was actually a memory. Maybe now that you're in the hospital and you're in a safe setting, the memory's ready to come out, and that dream might be... So they talk be. this poor woman into the absolute exactly. conviction. No, a psychologist would, would, would analyze that somewhat differently. A psychologist would say that this was a, an, an excellent example of behavioral shaping. Sure. Uh, that is that the treater progressively and systematically reinforced certain kinds of memories or other reports they got closer and closer and closer to the report that she was sexually abused. Right. And, over, and that, those kinds of Whenever procedures she says take the right a great words, deal of she time. Gets rewarded. Yes, that's right. Rewarded with the approval of the therapist. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, how did the case get reversed? How did she come to know that all of this was a delusion essentially imposed on her by the psychiatrist? Not only this particular patient, but a number of them when you're in a delusional belief system like this, it, it seems to take a lot of input to keep that delusional yeah. system afloat. And when there's a break in treatment, it could be maybe their insurance money runs out or maybe uh, what the doctor takes a vacation, whatever it is, when, when you're distanced from that, uh, over a period of time, the delusions seem to break down. Um, you notice that there really aren't people trying to poison you. No one's taking pot shots at you from the rooftop. You're not being kidnapped when you leave the house at night. And over a period of time, and, and oftentimes a long period of time, um, actually there are even some patients now that are just coming out of this belief system after a number of years, uh, when you're exposed to, a, to reality, when you're out mm -hmm. in the world, it seems actually to, to resolve itself. Over at Rush, how many patients did this guy, this particular doctor, persuade that they had been sexually abused, maybe with extra involvement of satanic uh, circles and so on? It's difficult for me to give a number of that, but I would have to put it uh, at least uh, in the hundreds. In the hundreds? Yeah. <laughs> and are most of them now recovered from... I couldn't speak to that, that. That state of psychiatric abuse? I, I couldn't speak to that. Obviously, yeah. I see a, a, a small segment How'd of How did you finally population. get the settlement of $7.5 million? Well, Milt, we, uh, we 
we actually did that settlement uh, uh, w with very little work in the sense that we, we actually had, unlike a lot of these cases, where when you're dealing with a psychiatric patient, obviously you have to, you have to ask yourself, well, is the patient crazy or, or was it the doctor? Yeah. Well, in this particular case, we had irrefutable evidence in the form of chart notations, in the form of, of, of audio tapes. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was, from that, that point, strictly a... What was the defense? What did the accused doctor insist upon in his own defense? That the treatment was within the standard of care at the time, that this was a recognized, albeit minority, uh, view of, of mental health treatment, but it was within a, a recognized treatment modality. Has this very physician had any other cases of this sort brought against him? A number of them, actually. And has he lost on all of them? Uh, yes. How much has he cost the hospital uh, that he worked for? I, or the insurance company that covered him? I couldn't begin to calculate that. You mean my malpractice insurance? <laughs> <laughs> well, you pay, as a physician, you pay malpractice insurance, yeah. As but like your settlement of $7.5 million yeah. is only one of a number of judgments against him. That's correct. Yet, this man is still practicing psychiatry. That's correct. And How is that possible? I, I know that, uh, I understand that our professional association uh, uh, conducted the only sanction that it has available, which is that he's no longer a member of the American Psychiatric Association. Doesn't stop them from practicing. But professional, professional psychiatric associations don't have that power, only state governments do, and, uh, and the states have to decide on well, whether they're going to... This guy got out of town. He's now practicing in the West someplace. Right. He, his license was suspended for a couple of years. Does he have a hospital affiliation in his present practice? I really, I really don't know, Milton. No. Now, now, you, Dr. Spiro, have testified in a number of similar cases. That's uh, correct. Are they, how similar are those other cases? Uh, all involve uh, a very intense suggestion uh, to people at a vulnerable point in their lives mm. who came to have a series of beliefs about global repression of things that were happened 20, 30 years earlier, uh, where the defense did their best to prove that they might have happened, and uh, good Wisconsin juries decided, no, based on the evidence we have, this was suggested Does by some the of those doctor. cases involve not only sexual abuse by a parent or some other adult relative, but also uh, satanic uh, organizations, as did the one case that we've just been talking about? Oh, yes, I'm acquainted with one case where the doctor conducted an exorcism uh, to get the devil out of the patient. Uh, what in the world happens in medical training these days? How can you, it's supposed to be a, a mode of scientific training. How can you uh, get people through medical degrees, the psychiatric residency, etc., or the PhD in clinical psychology, and leave them so incompetent with regard to discriminating between uh, fact and uh, fantasy. Milt, when you find the answer to that one, let me know right away. I, I've I, been I, teaching I, in medical schools for 40 years, and uh, everything we do is in an effort to, to have doctors do evaluations, to monitor care when things get worse, to think, is it something I did? And most important, do no harm. Since the days of Hippocrates, yes, that's exactly. what medicine is about. When a doctor does harm, sees it happening, and attributes it to a, a body of theory, oh. it, that is malpractice. But I will tell you that when you are, when you are granted that PhD degree mm -hmm. or the medical degree, you are not inoculated against narcissism or arrogance. 
or stupidity. And, or stupidity. And in every profession, uh, we suffer those those blights. Hmm. Uh, now, actually, this kind of play with false memory and this inculcation of false memories of having been sexually abused is one kind of uh, psychotherapeutic malpractice, but there are many others. We haven't yet talked about them, but uh, our larger focus tonight is really on all the things to be aware of with regard to attempted modes of and available modes of, quote, psychotherapy. We pause again for some commercials. When we return, uh, let's begin to talk about some of the others. Let's talk about therapeutic touch, about compression therapy, about primal scream, which I thought had had its vogue and was gone, but apparently is still around, By about thought field therapy and anything else that you think we ought to warn the public about. We return uh, directly after these words. There is a great uh, Roman slogan, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Uh, what are the things that buyers of psychotherapeutic assistance ought to be aware of these days? I ran through a list of a few treatment uh, modalities, shall we call them, or treatment uh, types. Um, are they the worst? Therapeutic touch, compression therapy, primal scream, thought field therapy? What would you add? Uh, I would say there are some non-therapy movements that I think are dangerous. Some of the um, quasi-religious movements that uh, focus on uh, energy fields and uh, increasing your uh, psychic vibrance and uh, uh, clearing your uh, your psyche of, of pollutants, which don't tend to come from... Um, Why do you call them quasi-religious? Well, I, I, I mean, they tend to identify themselves religiously. Some of them even call themselves churches. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, they're usually practiced in bookstores, aren't they? They, they very frequently are. That's correct. Um, but I do think that the 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 buyer the, uh, needs to uh, be on the lookout for um, unusual um, treatments. Now, many times people will look to that because they're desperate they, and they're vulnerable. They've tried mm -hmm. every conventional method, uh, and so they hear something uh, way out of bounds. You know, we were, you mentioned before the rebirthing therapy. Or the uh, what is that actually? Therapy. Let's, let's explain. It what comes that is. from another uh, again uh, a, a false psychoanalytical theory uh, that that says that uh, we need to develop in a sequential way psychologically, and that uh, when you have problems as an adult, it's because you missed some of the early nurturing experiences, and so you need to go back to the womb, literally back into a womb, and get born again. And get born again. That's, that's it, born again in the non-Christian sense. It's born again in a kind of a parapsychology sense. Yeah. Um, and so they will. How do you do that? Well, how does a how does a therapist help you to get born again? A therapist will wrap you, or to instruct your parent, uh, your parents, if you're a child, to wrap you in uh, in materials. Uh, representing the womb. Was representing the womb. This is that compression therapy you mentioned a little yeah. bit earlier. In fact, there's been a death in that therapy, uh, by the way, melt out in Colorado. Uh, I remember young that girl, case a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. A young girl died uh, during that. Uh, well, trying what do they to do? Born. They wrap you in. In what heavy cloth of some kind? Yes, that's right. And then what? And how do they spring you? Uh, and then out gradually of the you're released as your anxiety supposedly uh, settles out, and you're prepared to then to be born. And and then after the birth, you're uh, you're swaddled uh, like a baby would be. You're held and rocked, and uh, this goes on for uh, months uh, in a very slow, progressive way. Uh, and the theory is that you will then uh, re-experience. Uh, 
what you should have experienced the first time around. But you know, how curious. Frieda from Reichmann, a Viennese psychoanalyst who then later came to Harvard and practiced in the Cambridge area, had an adjunct appointment in psychiatry at Harvard, as I remember it, had a special mode of therapy she had developed for schizophrenics, in which she would take them and sit them on her lap, even if they were adults, and, uh, and embrace them and uh, treat them as infants. And somehow this was a, a way of getting them back to the beginning, and then that she would gradually somehow, I forget what all the details of the therapy were, she would graduate them from her lap into toddlerhood and so on. And that was to kind of reprogram them so that somehow they would uh, have a non-schizophrenogenic uh, kind of history. Well, it was madness, but it had the, the imprimatur of being psychoanalytic experimentation. It was there. Was, there was a body of theory about regression at the time. Regression therapies, exactly. Yes. But you know, I would have to respond that the worst crime for a person with schizophrenic, uh, schizophrenic disorder, is to have no care at all, to live with the symptoms, without anyone who cares, who makes use of modern psychopharmacology, uh, who basically helps to make sure the person's provided for. Mm -hmm. That I say that's the most frequent crime because that happens over and over and over again and it doesn't make the headlines. And so if we're going through the list of, of terrible things that happen to patients, one of the most horrible things that happens to the seriously mentally ill is they get no care at all. Yeah. All right, I'll grant that. But we don't want them to get the wrong kind of care or the kind of care that really is injury disguised as care. I, I think that the first principle of care is do no harm. What uh, are some of the other modes of care that in fact do injury? Well, uh, we have we have one that's uh, coming up right now. This is called the uh, this is thought field therapy, which attributes your problems to uh, blockages in the energy fields of the body. And uh, in order to cure this, you have to kind of release these blockages, and um, you do that by tapping on various points of your body in a certain sequence, mm -hmm. according to what kind of uh, problem that you're having. Now. Something like that uh, doesn't have the kind of potential for, for harm, let's say, that some of these other therapies we've been talking about. But it does lead people uh, into this whole realm of, of a belief system that uh, things are happening to them or that things can be helpful to them when they really aren't. And uh, I think it has the potential of putting people down a path where they are not going to receive the proper care and they c that can have adverse consequences. You're right. I, an, another type of therapy that has, has been getting a lot of attention is, and it's the primal scream type therapy. Uh, it, it's not called what primal scream. Jaroff? Yes, Jaroff. Leon or something? I believe so, yes, out yeah. of California. The, the, that goes back some 20 years or, or more. But more recently, we're, we're seeing, uh, if you will, counselors or therapists of sorts that are teaching people to express their long repressed rages and they teach them that if they've been uh, slighted by someone that they need to act on that rage and don't sit on it anymore. The sitting on the rage over the years has caused them pain so that uh, there will be group exercises in raging. Uh, these, these kinds of things uh, are dangerous because you, know, you can certainly provoke uh, people to do things they wouldn't normally do if they, if they weren't into these uh, hopped up spells of, of rage outlet. What does one have to say about 
the major modes of psychoanalytic treatment, the modes that derive from, trace back to Freud's innovations, but have gone through many variations and combinations. I have in mind, of course, standard psychoanalysis of the sort that they teach you to do, say, at the Chicago Psychoanalytic Institute, which usually still means a patient on a couch four or five times a week, quote, free associating and telling dreams while the analyst sits someplace behind him or her and occasionally interprets or otherwise leads the conversation. And that might go on for three, four, or five, or 10 years. Or if you're Woody Allen, it could become a way of life and go on for 25 years. Uh, and then we have the, var the various derivatives. A major derivative is Jungian uh, therapy, Jungian, quote, psychoanalytic therapy. There's a Jungian institute in the Chicago area, and there are a number of Jungian practitioners. Adlerian psychology, so-called, is yet another offshoot from psychoanalysis. Reichian psycho uh, psychoanalytic or, or psychotherapy, developed by Wilhelm Reich probably 50 years ago in New York, uh, another Austrian, or was he a German, uh, emigre, uh, and it had some very fanciful notions, including the availability of sexual energy called orgone energy in the air, which somehow had to be captured while you sat in orgone boxes. Uh, all of these trace ultimately to the father of Freud. Do any of those modes of therapy demonstrably do any real good for the patients? By demonstrably, I mean, is there evidence, is there data, are there data that demonstrates therapeutic success? Well, there, there is uh, data when, when, when these uh, therapies, these techniques have been put to the test uh, repeatedly over the past uh, 25 years where uh, measurements are made pre and post treatment mm -hmm. and, and so forth. And uh, the results have been pretty consistent in, in one replicated study after another. And consistent in what direction? Well, I will tell you that uh, the results have consistently indicated that although it may be an entertaining adventure and there may be a lot of self-learning going on, uh, there has never been any evidence that has actually reduced uh, targeted behaviors. Uh, or it may become a psychological crutch. You have a paid companion with it, whom you can release your anxieties and release your thoughts. It may have a benefit in itself, but in terms of uh, reducing mental illness or reducing aberrant behaviors, uh, there's, no there's no evidence that uh, do that's I what it does. Do I read the facial expression of Dr. Herzl Spyro correctly? Are you a bit uh, skeptical about what's just been said by your colleague? Well, I was thinking of uh, the one form of therapy that uh, developed a sufficient number of rules so it could be tested uh, in under reasonably controlled circumstances, mm -hmm. and that was the interpersonal therapy that was based on Harry Stack Sullivan's psychoanalytic movement, and it actually had outcomes that were similar to that of the cognitive therapies. I think that, uh, that beating a dead horse that's a hundred years old uh, is too easy and out. Uh, that dead my, horse is psychoanalysis itself? No, it's, I, look, a any physicist who uh, doesn't know Newton is no physicist. Only physis any physicist who only knows Newton is certainly no physicist. Nicely uh, yeah. Most of us who trained when I did in the 1960s had supervisors, some of whom were quite remarkable, who were still working from theories uh, that have been evolving and evolving over the years. Even when you speak of the Chicago Psychoanalytic, I'm not a member of that institute, I'm not a psychoanalyst. Uh, but I did come down to try to learn a bit from Dr. Kohut when he was living, mm -hmm. who developed a very 
a, a set of theories that had great heuristic value. By that I mean they spun off things that made people think. And I want to make one other point. You know, there is no psychoanalyst here to defend psychoanalysis, but I think one point has to be made. When we discussed the false memory cases, and we went through our collective experience and what we've read, we never found a case that was caused by psychoanalysts who were following the rules of analysis. Yes, that's correct. So I, I, I just want to be cautious. This is a field that's still evolving. You're talking about a re-education experience for people whose symptom levels is quite low and quite different from the group that I'm experienced with treating who have very severe illnesses. And I just don't want to confuse, you know, eggs and not just apples, but eggs and hippopotamuses. Uh, I think they're different issues. That, uh, that re requires some clarification. You're suggesting that psychoanalytic patients usually are by no means as disordered as uh, the kinds of people you worry about. They, in my experience, uh, just in my experience as a professor who uh, had psychoanalysts on his staff when mm -hmm. I was department chairman, uh, the psychoanalysts do a, a very careful job of screening. Uh, they take people into this method of treatment, which is quite regressive, uh, who have what they call ego strengths. And I don't think that a whole body of development over the past century can be dismissed by referring to what its founder thought uh, over uh, 109 years ago. So I, I think that's dismissive and you know, and, and away from the topic. And I do think that the bulk of patients who seek psychoanalysis are screened by their analysts and they're having a different type experience. I'm worried much more about the severe and chronically mentally ill mm -hmm. who get ignored in this. The debate is intellectually stimulating, but it doesn't do much. These are the ambulatory psychotics. Well, these are people with major depressive disorder. Yeah. These are the people who represent 20% of the disability in the United States and get less than 7% of the health expenditures. And so we wind up in a discussion of theory when, in fact, as I say, there are people at our doorstep who need care and aren't getting so it. So you are convinced that apart from other problems, one major problem is that there's a very inadequate health care delivery system when it comes to psychological and psychiatric practice. Inadequate is the kindest thing you could say about it. Well, we might elaborate further, get more information about that, more of your views on what's wrong with psychiatric health care delivery. After we pause for this, we are talking tonight about modes of psychotherapy, modes of psychiatric health, uh, both feasible, functional, and desirable, and impractical, mistaken, sometimes even quasi-criminal. Uh, our guests are Zachary Bravos, who is a lawyer who has done a fair amount of litigation concerning matters of this sort, just recently won a major judgment against a malpracticing psychiatrist. Uh, Dr. Herzl Spiro is a practicing rather than malpracticing psychiatrist. He was the director of mental health for Milwaukee County in his time, former president of the Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital, and now in private practice. Uh, Dr. Roger P. Hatcher is a clinical psychologist whose uh, practice is based in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, and you were about, uh, uh, Herzl Spiro, to talk about uh, the problem of uh, inadequate health care delivery in the psychiatric realm. You say inadequate is a kind word. Yes. You know, um, we have shifted so that there basically is not state adequate state care. We've cut budgets over and over again. We closed the, down the mental we, hospitals. We closed down the mental hospitals. There's not parity 
in health insurance care. There's, and what we've done is not saved huge amounts of money. We've shifted the expenditure to having the mentally ill in prisons, uh, dealing with the is issues of homelessness. Uh, we've separated the care of people with alcoholism and drug abuse from mental illness. You can't treat them together, even though about 40% of people with severe mental illness also have abuse issues. Uh, we've made it almost impossible to have continuous care with uh, people who will do a good evaluation and will give kindly common sense care and make it evidence-based. And I want to emphasize that the bulk of psychotherapists who I personally have supervised, been responsible for, try very hard to do a good job within a field that has its limitations. I'm happy that we have a legal system that helps us deal with the, the outliers, the people who do a bad job. But the problem now is the barrier between the average person who has severe illness and needs help and qualified people who can help them. And there are qualified people, and there's, there's a disconnect. Roger, let me, let me jump on that, too. Uh, Herschel's making a very, very good point. The, we, the truth is this, Mel, is, is in the last 25 years, we have seen a revolution in the development in, uh, of, of effective uh, mental health treatments. We have seen the, the world of mental health uh, advance dramatically. And there's been really two main reasons for that. One is, without question, uh, the role of, uh, of pharmaceuticals in, in treatment today is grossly different than it was 25 years ago. Bipolar disorders can be brought under effective control that way. There are you. so many disorders that can be effectively managed when yeah. they're effectively handled. Uh, and, and, and Herschel's point that uh, so many seriously ill people are being left out of that uh, is well made. I think the second uh, part of that revolution is the development of truly effective behavioral therapies or cognitive behavioral therapies as they are called. Now I know that both you and Herschel are enthusiastic for that. What exactly is Cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, it is a um, it is a form of uh, what what uh, I think uh, we would call an, uh, a scientifically developed uh, schema in which you change behavior by some predictable fashion. Uh, it grows out of the general field of behaviorism. It does not grow out of, by the way, psychoanalysis. So it's behavioral conditioning. It is. It is it's a behavioral conditioning, responses. a reshaping type of treatment. Now, how might that work? Uh, suppose I come in and I say I'm anxious, I'm frightened of everything. I can think of nothing but all the the worst catastrophic consequences that might follow from any action I undertake. Yes. And I'm driving everybody around me crazy by asking them, how do I decide this or that? Because I think everything might blow up in my face. Uh, yes, the, the interesting thing is that about, a presenting yeah, no, that, 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 that would, be, that would be a presenting problem. Yeah. Would, uh, that I would, remember uh, that from my own clinical internship many years they, ago. It would show itself on a, on a daily basis in, in a psychologist's office. Uh, the interesting uh, thing about this is that uh, the the psychologist is going to focus today on the behaviors that are troublesome much more than the etiology or the presumed etiology. Right. So play it through for behaviors. the patient I just made up. Well, the first, what, what would you ask him? What would you say to him? Well, the first thing that one would do would be to isolate what are the most severe behaviors that need to be addressed. What uh -huh. are the what are the anxiety behaviors that he's complaining about? I think you mentioned that he was. Uh, constantly obsessing or thinking repetitive thoughts mm -hmm. that he couldn't get rid of about some catastrophe occurring. Yeah. And so what the psychologist would do would be to target that 
type of mental behavior, the obsessional thinking, and would give the patient clear instructions on how to desensitize from the anxiety that those thoughts cause, or would give, and would also, I should say, and would also give a clear instruction on how to divert those thoughts uh, into something else. Uh, it would point out the ways in which those thoughts have been reinforced. Play that through with me for just a moment. Yes. Let me then be the patient. Um, and I'll, you ask me what particularly bothers you. I'll say, you know, I really can't do any shopping. Whenever I go to a, a food store, I'm very worried about whether the food is spoiled or about whether it has ingredients that might be harmful to me or too many calories. And it just kind of makes it impossible for me to complete a normal grocery shopping. There would be uh, some number of behavioral regimens that the person would be uh, would be given. Uh, one one uh, of the most basic ways would be to desensitize gradually the that uh, anxious response. How so would you do that? You would do that by gradually getting the person to think about uh, being in a grocery shopping environment, mm -hmm. eventually actually being in that grocery shopping environment, and at the same time teaching that person how to deeply relax. The truth is that you cannot be relaxed and anxious at the same time. You can be one or the other. So if you can control the relax relaxation side of that equation, you can control the symptom side uh, on the other side of the equation. So you teach the person to control his level of agitation his uh, by some method. Sometimes it's deep muscle relaxation, sometimes there's other methods. I had occasion in very different contexts just the other night to quote a famous statement by Henry Ford, history is bunk. And in a way, these behavioral therapies assume that uh, the psychological history of the person is bunk, is irrelevant, that the solution lies not in digging deep into the past, but examining the present structure of dysfunctional behaviors. Well, I, I would agree with you in a sense, in, in the terms that there, that, that type of uh, deep uncovering kind of psychotherapy is not a part of behavioral cognitive psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. However, history is important in finding out what got these behaviors going. What were the stimuli? Then you do dig into the past. We need to find what were the things that tripped them, because there yeah. will still be tripping them, obviously. Uh, but, uh, but not the kind of analytical exploration uh -huh. that has been done in yeah. times and past. Dr. Spiro, you, you, your practice is along these lines as well, isn't it? No, you know, Roger and I agree on many things, but we come from different backgrounds. And if I was convinced that desensitizing to a phobia about shopping and food uh, was the primary issue, I might well refer the patient to Roger. But before I would do that, yeah. uh, I would want to do a full psychiatric workup. To me, that means understanding the human being who's sitting in front of me, doing a screen for a whole variety of symptoms, taking a thorough history of the present illness. To me, the past history is not bunk. It's not that human beings are the product of a repressed memory from 40 years ago that's globally repressed. I don't believe that. But I do believe that people have life stories. Milt, I think you do. And I'd be fascinated at what it is. I'm not really afraid of supermarkets, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> but do, do you understand what I'm saying? That my, 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 I would want to know your life story. Mm -hmm. I'd want to know, I'd want a human being to be sitting in front of me, and I'd want to know about that person. I'd also want to do a formal mental status examination. I want to make sure that the anxiety is not related to some organic lesion, that there aren't other symptoms that have, that have been missed. When I've done a complete evaluation, I develop a treatment plan. If the primary treatment was related to the phobia, and I thought a behavioral desensitization, that is an established way, there are other ways. 
uh, the, it, it might involve cognitive reframing. But most what, of the what, patients... What does cognitive reframing mean? Sometimes you need to think through what it is that you're... what the set is that you're experiencing, mm -hmm. what the attributions are that you're making. And I'm reflecting my own background as a social psychologist as well as a psychiatrist. And so there's a different body of theory that when I did my psychology training that I was studying. You've got but both degrees, your PhD and MD. Yes, but in practice, uh, uh, in my practice right now, I do contractually time-limited therapies and I visit my grandchildren because I'm semi-retired. Uh, but in terms of doing evaluations, uh, what I'm primarily interested in is developing accurate diagnosis and then getting timely treatment that is related to what I think is wrong with the patient. There's one other step that you mentioned earlier and I want to make sure we get to, that I'd want to make sure the patient knows what I think. That's one of the delightful changes in psychiatry. Uh, we're more patient-centered right now. I think informed consent. I think the patient would need to know what I think the diagnoses are and I, I hope we would all agree. And I think that we're more multimodal in uh, today's right. world than we ever were before so that by the, the way do we have good empirically based studies demonstrating that the modes of therapy that you're now talking about produce uh, significant improvements in patients yes there there is a, a, a plethora of studies over the past uh, especially the the last 20 years have been most productive in in terms of looking at these behavioral interventions these types of cognitive therapies or behavioral therapies uh, they prove that they are effective in addressing, particularly when you're able to address specific mm -hmm. target behaviors. We did a program only uh, a few nights ago with a British sociologist who's got a major book, which has been quite the rage over in the UK, in which he, it's about the therapy culture. I think that's the title of the book, as I remember it. And he argues essentially that the notion that we're all potentially psychologically off balance is in fact a very disequilibrating notion. We all then tend to view our moral failures or our own personal selfishness as really due to some sort of underlying pathology, which gives us an excuse, gives us cover, uh, and uh, in essence keeps us constantly narcissistically focused, asking what's wrong with me? You know, I... And therefore he, he argues, excuse me, he argues really that the whole psychiatric enterprise is a kind of a, a not only a unnecessary crutch, but in some ways a dysfunctional crutch, which keeps people narcissistically self-focused and keeps them also making excuses for themselves when what they really need is to stand up and face life like an adult. That could only come from an author who's never treated a seriously psychiatrically ill patient. I suppose. And you know, it's... Uh, it, as far as what the psychiatric framework is, I think in modern psychiatry, it tends to emphasize coping mechanisms, how people build yes. from their strengths, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not pathology focused. And I think, again, it's another convenient whipping boy that totally misses the mark. Uh, I think it's, again, a person, if you look in the mirror and the only person you're treating is yourself, you come to conclusions like that. If you're looking at suffering humanity, of the enormous number of people who live lives of quiet despair, uh, I think you could reach very different conclusions. At any rate, we're all agreed it would be good if we got the practitioners, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, the psychiatric social workers, and Lord knows who else, to uh, 
be a little bit, so all of them be somewhat more intelligent about what they do and to resist the false lures of uh, of uh, fictions concerning what path, uh, what can, what pathologizes human beings. Melt, I agree with that, and, and what goes along with that is not only the education of the treaters, it's the education of the patient, too. Yes, buyer beware. And, and this is exactly what I see as the, as the next major legal issue in mental health, is a real emphasis on informed consent. Milt, when you go to have some type of a surgical procedure, they have you sign every kind of form you can imagine. Mm -hmm. They tell you every possible consequence. And if you're going to have an experimental procedure, they're going to tell you it's an experiment. These are the risks. These are the potential benefits. And that's the same kind of information that needs to be given to people who are in the mental health system. If they're going to be in a treatment program that has not been shown to be effective or valid, then they need to know that. They need to have the kinds of information that consumers have so that they can make a reasoned choice as to whether or not to engage in that type of therapy or not. Well, the practitioner who comes to the local uh, New Age bookstore to give a seminar for anybody who wants to uh, be in attendance and suggests breathing patterns and uh, at the same uh, breathing yoga exercises combined with certain modes of visualization and that will get rid of your anxiety or that will lift you from your depression. Should that traveling practitioner also have a, an informed consent form that everyone who comes to the bookstore to hear him or her must read and sign? I think so, yes. I think if you're you going to do that. that legally, can you? I don't know. <laughs> We have an informed consent law in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. And anybody who's purporting to engage in mental health professional practice is required to give consent that uh, a reasonable woman or man, uh, to give the information that a reasonable woman or man would want to have. So would that guru in the bookstore passing through for a mere weekend, would he or she be required in Wisconsin to uh, get that kind of informed consent form signed. No, in Wisconsin we're all for freedom of speech and we yeah. probably would only enforce that on I itinerant people from Illinois coming through. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's hardly... You know, there's a big difference between free speech about ideas that I think are odious, ill-thought-out, and even stupid, and even harmful. It's a big difference between that and a person who is alleging that they are practicing a medical or psychological or mental health professional discipline. Now, gentlemen, it is time for us to pause once again for a quick round of commercials and then to go to the listeners. Uh, the phone number, and we're opening the lines at this instant, is, of course, 591-7200. For any question you want to raise, any experience you want to recount, any quibble you want to quibble, 591 7200 the area code 312 if you're calling long distance. The lines are open and available to you. And if you're at a very long distance and listening to us over the Internet rather than via mere radio and uh, you want to be in touch, whether you're on either coast or in another country, uh, you can reach us via email instantly. The email address extension 720 as one word, extension 720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. So that's it. Extension 720 at Tribune.com or 591-7200. I see that all of our lines are filled at the moment, so if you try by telephone, you may not get through. But the proper strategy, of course, is to call again in a few minutes, particularly after we say goodnight to some prior caller. We'll be right on to your calls and or email after this. 
And we will go directly to the phones in just a moment. But first, I want to read you a very interesting email. Uh, I wonder if you knew this. Um, your guests tonight might be interested to know that in the January 1997 issue of Chicago Magazine, Bennett Braun is listed as one of the top psychiatrists in Chicago. I saved this issue for reference, and I am now skeptical of its value. Did you know this? Yes, I did know that, Mel. Yeah. Yeah. He also gave an extensive uh, interview in that magazine, uh, I think the year before that, which some of his patients had the opportunity to read, and that was kind of the jumping-off point for them to get out of this therapy. Huh. How, do, how do we account for that particular man without doing him uh, any, uh, uh, any special disservice? Uh, but... Uh, if you, you, we're all interested in psychology and psychological explanation, how do you account for his own gullibility? Surely he was not a charlatan intending to sell fraudulent ideas that he himself did not believe. How did he come to hold these beliefs and to uh, and to practice this kind of psychiatric uh, uh, confabulation? What I learned from this is uh, a man or a woman's got to know their own limitations. And a certain therapeutic humility is absolutely essential. I don't know the doctor personally, so yeah. I wouldn't reflect on what was happening with him. But the cases I've seen... You've known other psychiatrists who do the same. Yes, and, yeah. and frankly, I, I, I think we have to practice our profession with a certain degree of humility. Yeah. With that, gentlemen, to the phones, 5917200, and here is the first caller. Good evening. Hello. Yes. Hi, my name is Liz, and I wanted to thank... Um, Mr. Bravos and the rest of the gentlemen for being on there. Uh, our family was impacted by this 15 years ago, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and we still do not have our daughter back or our grandchildren back uh, due to unethical treatment by a psychiatrist in Milwaukee. And uh, I just wanted to thank these gentlemen for what they're doing tonight. Your daughter was... Con became My daughter was treated at St. Francis in Milwaukee yeah. 15 years ago and uh, was made to believe that uh, she was made to kill babies and her father killed babies and she was sexually molested as a child. And she still believes that to be the she case? She still believes it to this day. And she's a practicing, practicing psychologist in the Rockford area. Oh, my. Rockford, oh. Illinois. And uh, our family is not back together and probably will be not back together in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk about the people who have come out of this, very few, very, very few have come out of this. Well, uh, I'm aware of the, uh, of the false memory syndrome uh, foundation. Yes, I know you are. I was on your show at one time oh. many years ago. Oh, well, how nice to hear from you again. I think I do remember that. But... Um, uh, surely, uh, now, Zach, you've been involved with them as well, haven't you? Yes. I, yes, I have, yes. And uh, uh, what's the degree of recovery from false memory uh, syndrome convictions? I think it's a really difficult thing to gauge because we only see that segment of the population that is willing to, uh, if not uh, distance, you know, if not to actually uh, give up those memories, at least to not focus on them any longer, I think the rate of recovery is, is hopefully larger than what the caller uh, has suggested. I think that... I disagree. The, I think the number of people that have come out of it uh, have, have been substantial. There are a number of people that have invested so much of their life and have paid such a mm. great price 
to become invested in this therapy that they probably will never come out of it because to do so would mean that they have essentially have to give up uh, uh, the, the things that they've done and the losses that they've uh, incurred in their life, and they're just not able to do that. Ma'am, we thank you for the call. And thank I, you. I appreciate hearing from you once again. 591-7200, the number. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I have a quick question for Dr. Spear. Did you used to live in New Jersey? Yes, I did. Okay, I went to school with your son, but that's not why I called. Um, <laughs> and you actually worked with my parents at Rutgers, I believe. Yes. But anyway, um, I had an experience. I, I live out here in DuPage County, and I work in mental health, and I'm a counseling psychologist. And uh, Dr. Spear, you made a comment about how hard it is for the average person to get mental health. And... Um, uh, an experience we had recently, I'm in a gay relationship, and I've been with my spouse for 13 years, and he's been depressed for most, most of his life, and it comes and goes, but most recently, he's been uninsured, and because I can't get him under my policy, we tried to get him into mental health services here in, um, in the county, and he had to basically be get, become quite sick in order to get the services. We tried as early as last summer and just um, because he didn't fit into the box, uh, literally, we were told things like, well, have you beaten him? Uh, because if I had beaten him, then he could have qualified for, you know, certain programs. And so it just really resonated with me when you, you, you uh, talked about how average people just can't get in, and I certainly hearken back to my old days working at the Rutgers Mental Health Center when the whole community could basically come in and um, hope that someday we can get back to some of that. And just wanted to hear your comments on that. Thank you for your comments. It's it's just terrible that uh, your partner should have to be going through this without the help. You know that at the Rutgers Mental Health Center, we tried to make care available equitably to everyone. We tried to do that in Milwaukee County as well. Chicago was once the center of that sort of thing with very great community psychiatrists in this city. We're not going to replace the community mental health movement of the 60s. We need a movement for the 21st century where equitable care is given to everyone. What shape should such a movement take? Well, I have personal views. I, I think that there's room for different states and different areas to, to work with different modes of delivering services. I'm very impressed with the uh, not-for-profit uh, uh, organization that has a board of people who really care what happened and where the therapy is driven by people's professionalism their desire to really practice their profession well I think our current system based either in the profit motive or in extensive civil service lists has mm -hmm. its problems uh, and with that gentlemen on to another caller you are on the air good evening hi my name is Tina and I was once treated by Dr. Braun and I lost 10 years of my life and today I am still under psychiatric care but I am much much better I am a survivor and I was convinced that I had 11 different personalities um, I believe I know a few of the people that you are talking about I was in the hospital at the time they were. I am now with another psychiatrist, and um, 
I have been doing very well. At one point with Dr. Braun, I was on about 20 to 25 different medications. And he had also sold you on the notion that you were sexually abused by a parent or something yes, like that? Yes, that I was sexually abused. Um, they used to have sand trays and make you set these sand trays up. They had people in it and, like, where your house was and how things were set up and, you know, what was done to you in that. Um, I was estranged from my family for quite a few years. Horrible. I am. I do see my my father was not around to hear you know the things that he supposedly did to me, and I am happy that he wasn't. But I they tried. To, they were going to take my kids away from me. I have three children. Um, they have, were very young at the time. Have you instituted suit against uh, uh, Braun or the hospital? No, I haven't. Um, I keep hearing different things. This is the first time I've ever, you know, called into any place. Yeah. And I feel that I'm, I'm finally, I've made headway. They're starting to, you know, I'm on maybe four medications right now is all I'm on, and we're cutting back those. That I'm finally, and I feel my kids lost their mother for all those years. We lost, we almost lost our house because, you, you know, you were talking about, like, the money and everything. I mean, at first we had a very, very good insurance policy that covered a lot, most of the medical bills. But then when my husband lost his job and got another job, they didn't cover it. How much of your own money went into this, quote, treatment? How? Probably 150 to $200,000. My God. Oh. Oh. If not more, that, um, my husband had to take all of our money out of our retirement fund. We have no money to this day to, for our retirement he is 58 years old. I'm 53. We don't know what we're going to do when we retire, or if we could ever retire. I don't understand why. Well, I, I want to bring Zachary in on this. Yeah. Why you don't sue? Well, that's because I just, Well, that's a whole other thing. And I just went through five years on a workers' comp case, and it got me nowhere. That's always a, a choice for the patient, uh, uh, Milt. I mean, I'm not going to encourage anyone to sue. Uh, the road of a lawsuit is is stressful in itself. Um, you know, all I can say to Tina is uh, my best wishes to you. Yeah. We thank well, you very I, much. I am the survivor, and yeah. I have come through this. And you know, um, I have my kids, and I've got my family. And you know, I hope these other people get you know are able to get back to their families and mm -hmm. get together and find somebody. I found somebody who is a very good person. Here's a, a further comment from Dr. Spiro. What I hear is that you have leaned into your real strengths and you're working with a competent therapist and it sounds like your children have a mother now. Yes. And, I, and uh, perhaps as you work with your therapist you can give yourself credit for your resilience and that you can that you survived and, and managed to go along with something that I think all of us uh, in this panel feel is unacceptable and you shouldn't have had to go through. And someone ought to say to you, I'm terribly sorry that happened to you and I admire you for having dealt with it. Thank you, ma'am, for Thank the call. You. Very glad to have heard from you, though the story is surely a, a, a disturbing one, a very disturbing one. 591-7200, the number. You are the next caller. Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening. I want to know what the panel thought the role of prosecutors had in legitimating these pseudosciences. I'm thinking most pointedly of uh, the Miami Miami defense uh, promulgated by uh, Janet Reno. 
Well, the caller here, Milt, is talking about some of the child abuse prosecutions that took place into the uh, uh, into the 80s and into the 90s, and there was a, a large movement that's highlighted by some very famous cases. Yeah, these are prosecutions of criminal parents accused after their kids have been through this kind of rigmarole. No, I think the caller is really referring to the uh, the child abuse prosecutions that took place uh, with very young children uh, and and therapists talking about children not being able to lie about yeah. abuse and these kinds of things. So it's based upon therapist assertions that they've got evidence that the kid has been sexually abused. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And I think there was uh, there was a movement there. And, and uh, what's, I think Janet, what, what's Janet Reno's involvement? Well, she was the attorney general down there in Florida, and she uh, prosecuted a number of people uh, for child sex abuse crimes. And uh, a number of those people, I believe, are are st some are still in prison. I believe many of them were falsely. In and prison. that's what recommended her to be attorney general of the United States. Well, among other things, I think that's Sorry. how she made her name. I didn't know that. I truly didn't know that. Uh, thank you, sir. Stay healthy. <laughs> Maybe by staying away from if not all, many psychiatrists and psychologists. <laughs> um, there is the concept, you, you know, there's a term for it, iatrogenic disease. That's a term that comes from, uh, I think, the words iatro from uh, the Greek doctor. Yeah, you would know as a Greek. And, and, and genesis, which, yeah. of course, is a source. It's doctor, an illness. Doctor causes disease. Yeah, illness yeah. that has a source in the doctor. And in the broad realm of mental health, that is a real entity, iatrogenic Oh, there's disorder. no question. Uh, there's no question about that. And this is a perfect example yeah. of uh, the treatment causing the disease. Yeah. Um, Tina, uh, her her voice still rings in my head uh, from the, from a few minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, what a what a horrible horrible experience that woman had. I I, I have to say uh, I admire her uh, listening to her that she's going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we go. Uh, forward or sideways, take care of a round of commercials. And then we'll be back to the phones and to the email. 5917200 or for email extension 720 at tribune.com. And uh, gentlemen, let me read you something I have on email. One of your panels stated that every mental health patient is entitled to the opportunity to make a quote, reasoned judgment of the risks of his treatment. My first wife was treated for symptoms of mental illness from 1953 till her death in 1991 from electroconvulsive therapy and lobotomy through the gamut of discoveries following, uh, she had as much chance of making a reasoned judgment as I do of convincing you that this is being dictated by the little green man sitting on my shoulder. I feel he was uh, stating the truth and nothing but, without including the whole truth. But the statement rubbed me the wrong way. That is the statement that all patients should uh, have the opportunity to make a reasoned judgment. Maybe someone wants to address this comment. Yeah, I think he makes a very good point. There are people who are really incompetent to yeah. give informed consent, where you need to work with the family members. Uh, They're the ones who have to make the reason judgment. Or it may, you may have to work with a guardian in some sure. situations. And there are individuals where we really need something that's called uh, outpatient commitment, which now occurs in several states uh, where they, they really get treatment, but one where it's being decided by the family, uh, by the judicial system protecting them, and by highly qualified practitioners. And it's always hard. You make sort of statements, you know, in an instant. And I, I'm glad that the uh, listener corrected it, because he's right. And we go back to the phones. By the way, if you've been trying to reach us, there now are a few lines available. Uh, so 
If you move quickly, you may well get through. On 5917200. Good evening. You are on the air. Hi. My name's Elizabeth. And I wanted to call. I had a couple comments I'd like to make. I was treated by Bennett Braun. Another one. Yeah. Uh, Zach, it's me. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, to the caller in Wisconsin whose daughter, um, she's lost her daughter, I want to tell her have some faith that hopefully her daughter will come back. It took me a long, long time to reconnect with my family, and it was very difficult. And um, to uh, Tina, I'm glad she's out and she's receiving really good treatment. And I find it ironic that she uses the word survivor because when all of us were in the hospital, we were constantly told that we were survivors. Do I understand that you are then the client of Zach Bravos, who's, uh, whose case was just finally litigated? Yes, I with am. With a $7.5 million judgment? Yes, I am. Well, congratulations. No, thank you. And if I may, um, several years after I was off that unit, I heard a joke, and it kind of relates to what you said about um, Dr. Braun's um, culpability or how he believed these things. And the thing was that was said is, what was the difference between God and Dr. Braun? And the punchline was that God knows he's not Dr. Braun. <laughs> yeah. And he, he really felt that he was right and that his treatment was the correct treatment. How much time did you spend uh, incarcerated on his ward? Um, I was there... Four years straight. Four years? But I, actually, my total hospitalizations were over five and a half years. What happened during all of that time? During all that time, uh, hypnosis, drugs, uh, constant treatment on a unit, eventually on a unit after about six months, where it was just uh, dissociative MPD patients no other patients. So the milieu was very closed, very protected. Myself, I was restricted to the unit for most of those four years, which means I did not get off that floor, whereas other people would get to go down for an hour or whatever. I could not unless I was accompanied and, by staff. And were you, at, at the height or at the depth of all of that, were you, in fact, totally convinced uh, of the the fictitious past that Braun had invented for you? Totally. When I well, what broke it? What broke it? It was very gradual. Uh, even when I first saw my mother, I took a friend with me. My mom did not know where I lived. She did not have my phone number because I was still wary. And it was limited contact with my family. Yes, this was okay. I wasn't, I wasn't killed. I wasn't harmed. They weren't doing me any harm. Hmm. So it, it took a long time, and it was gradual. And when you talk about filing a lawsuit, it's, it's very difficult to do because your beliefs are being questioned. And going through all that, you're uncertain yourself. It took my brother to help me realize just how badly I was damaged by the therapy. Um, in in the litigation, did you did you actually go to the courtroom or was it all? This was so, a settlement. No. So, was there any point at which our caller directly faced Braun across the table? No. Not in this case, no. No. So you've never seen him since then? No. What would you say to him if you 
uh, had, if you ran into him on the streets of Chicago? Angry. How could you? I would think so, yes. How could you do that? How could you let me believe all this terrible, terrible stuff? How could you do this to my family? Yeah. And, Zach, what do you think Braun would answer to that question? I think he'd probably say that he did the best he could at the time. And that he saved my life. I think he would say, I saved her life. Hmm. When, in fact, that I became, the, the more I was in, the more episodes of suicidal um, ideation I had. It sounds to me like criminal activity, um, even if not intended as such. And one wonders whether there shouldn't be criminal sanctions rather than merely civil suit. I think when you get into criminal sanctions, you're talking about the evil, the evil heart, the evil mind, yeah. the intent to do harm, and, and I'm not convinced personally no, that that's present. I'm not either, but still. Um, but it makes me think that the, the, uh, the old adage about the worst transgressions are not those of ignorance, but those of arrogance. Arrogance. Nicely said. It, it, was, yeah. it, it was either his way or no way. Hmm. And staff that disagreed with him, they were soon gone from the unit. How many of you caught up in that same delusional system were uh, on the ward as in-house patients? At any one time? Yeah. When I first went into the unit, there was only four patients with a complete staff. So we had staff galore. I'm talking art therapist, music therapist, occupational therapist, um, plus two or three nurses. The, the, and then the ward was only for patients who were recovering their memory of sexual abuse. Yes. Huh. Only it was only those. A very exclusive club. Yeah, very. And you re and you reinforced one another, of course. You yes, and, and not knowing that we reinforced in some ways, and yeah. then in the other ways, they felt, oh, this person went through it too. Sure. So it must be true if someone else went yeah. through it. Well, how are you doing now? Much much better. I would hope so. It took me a long time, and I also have a good therapist that um, has helped tremendously and helped me put things in the proper perspective. And I guess after the kind of therapy you had, you need therapy to work it off. Exactly, and it's cost me money. Mm -hmm. The damage that was done, and I... Uh, Elizabeth, how many pa uh, patients were on a unit at the, the highest point there? I think there was 12 at the highest point. Okay. From time I was in, there was went from four to six to eight. It was at eight for a long time. When it went to Russian Shore, I believe it was up to ten. And I think the highest was twelve. By the way, where did the money come from to pay them? Uh, you sure, surely must have exhausted whatever medical insurance you had. That's what I was going to say, because when I first started treatment with him, I had a very generous insurance policy. I had unlimited, 100% coverage, unlimited. Hmm. And then I was let go because I was off work. Obviously, two years, they're not going to keep you on the payroll. And ultimately, I went on Medicare. And then I had a Medicare supplement. And with one of the doctors, I paid out of pocket. How much did you pay out of pocket? Oh, over 10000 Only that? And well, it depleted my savings. Um, no. I ended up, because at one point, Dr. Braun's uh, bookkeeper totally, totally screwed up his records. I literally spent hours figuring out my own billing, what was paid, what hadn't been paid, calling insurance companies. No. 
to give him payment, and then I paid, no, I paid more than 10000 because I paid 21000 directly to him. My, my. Well, Elizabeth, welcome back to the world. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for calling. You're welcome. It's been an especially valuable contribution. <laughs> really is something. Now, you know this woman well, don't yes, you? Yes, I do, yes. Yeah. yeah, she's a remarkable lady. Yeah. She sounds fine. Yes. Uh, a number of the patients, I think, I, I'm continually amazed at the the amount of strength that they, they have and what could have been done with that strength had there been proper therapy. Oh, dear. Um, I won't try to top what she said. Uh, I want to read a, uh, a query we have via email. I'm looking for a therapist. I came across many psychologists who have PsyD, that is P-S-Y, capital D, after their name. What is the difference between uh, these psychologists and a Ph.D.? Are they the same? Can I trust them to perform competent psychotherapy? Yes, uh, they are the same. Um, to they be a psychologist in this state or in, in any other state, you, you have to be uh, licensed by the state. And, and the requirements for licensing include a doctoral degree in psychology. Um, historically, most of psychologists have been trained with a Ph.D., but in more recent years, they uh, they also award the Doctor of Psychology degree. The basic when, difference is that the PsyD doesn't have to do a doctoral dissertation. Uh, the, the PsyD does not do the extent of research that a PhD yeah. uh, candidate would do, but they do some research and some dissertation work, n not at the level of rigor that mm. one would normally see in a doctoral PhD program. Another quick uh, email. Do tonight's guests believe that any or many of the Multitudes of charges concerning sexual abuse by Catholic priests are the result of false memory syndrome. I personally suspect they are. How about the charges against the late uh, revered Cardinal Bernadine? I should tell you this is from a Catholic priest who uh, is, works down in Texas. You know, I have um, wondered about that issue myself, uh, but and I have no direct contact with that, uh, with that population of, of uh, plaintiffs uh, but but I do I can't help but notice that uh, that they're 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 pretty thorough uh, evaluations of these issues as I've seen them discussed. That disturbed that, that difficult young man from Cincinnati who leveled those charges against Cardinal Bernadine uh, was worked up to this frenzy and given those ideas by a a hypnotherapist whose training in false memory recovery had been uh, achieved over three weekends of uh, some sort of special seminar and he ultimately uh, uh, recanted recanted on all yes. of it yeah so that was clearly a case of false memory implantation yes i would take the position milt that that any claim of sexual abuse that's based upon a recovered memory a previously repressed memory uh is is in my opinion going to be a false claim mm -hmm. and hypnosis is one of the easiest ways to Hypnosis is... To do that implantation. It is. It doesn't have to be done by hypnosis. And what's interesting, by the way, is a number of therapists actually are doing hypnosis without knowing it. They're using techniques that they think are are not hypnotic, like guided imagery exactly. and, and these yeah. kinds of things that they don't really realize are, are essentially hypnotic techniques. Yeah. And by that you mean suggestibility. Suggestibility. Sure. Exactly. Back to the phones. 591-7200. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Um, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm an occupational therapist, and I have been for a very long time. I did my psych affiliation or internship at Norwich State Hospital in 1975, back when they had the big state hospitals. Um, nowadays, we are not even required to do an internship in psych because there are no placement centers, um, and there are basically no jobs for OTs 
in the lot, you know, in, in the psych field. But what I'd like to address the broad issue of the lack of mental health care facilities that the one doctor referred to, which I agree is just terrible. Uh, when I work in nursing homes doing, you know, um, physical disabilities, I, I see that, first of all, they get more money when they get a psych patient in, if they're willing to take psych patients. We get, like, a young fella came in the other day, and he's just wandering around. He's getting absolutely no treatment from anyone. I, I really feel exactly as he does. They're in the prisons, they're, they're homeless, they're in nursing homes, or they're not getting any care at all. And um, what do the doctors see as, obviously, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I don't know what happened to the professionals at that time. And I never really worked in psych except sporadically here and there, contract. But um, I've worked in physical disabilities. And also, when you work in the nursing home, you can't see these psych patients because you can't do a 311 as your, um, you know, let's say, as your uh, diagnostic code and the Medicare won't cover us working with them in the nursing homes because they just want us to provide care for physically disabled clients. But um, where do you see us going as America? And is this happening in Europe or Canada? Have they thrown the baby out with the bathwater? Let's find out, and we'll turn to okay. Dr. Herzl Spiro. Thank you. I, I regret to say this as a proud American, but I think our system is one of the worst in the civilized world. Um, I certainly see... Uh, abuses in Europe when I visited there, but I also have worked in third world countries that actually do a better job of equity of care. Where's that? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually worked in Iran for a while before the revolution. We set up a mental health care system there. I was visiting professor in Cairo. Uh, I don't recommend that system highly, but at least there was there were efforts being made. And uh, here we've tossed the whole thing over to the profit motive. Can I make one other comment? The the background that you describe has been crucial in helping people with severe chronic illness who otherwise would have been in state hospitals and now are many times among the homeless or shunted into nursing homes. And occupational therapy, recreational therapy, there's a whole series of types of therapies that I think are cost effective, that provide a far more humane environment. And it's tragic that that's been tossed out with everything else. All right, thanks to the caller, and we must move quickly. Time is now rather short. You are on the air. Good evening. Yes, I want to discuss the issue of trust because that is at the core of tonight's discussion, it seems to me. And I feel that a lot of therapists, or well, I know that a lot of therapists have uh, an attitude similar to a lot of hypnotists, and that is, uh, disable your reality testing for a while. Don't don't question. Just surrender yourself. And a lot of formal schools of therapy advocate that approach to the point where a therapist will say to a client, you know, you need to get out of your intellect. We're going to explore your emotions. And I would find it so refreshing to hear a psychiatrist say, I respect your curiosity. I respect your ability to question. Let's be Socratic about our therapeutic methods because when I go to a physician about a physical ailment, I feel free to ask all the questions I want to because I'm putting my health in his hands. And it would mm -hmm. seem to me that, that safety and health would be restored to therapy a lot more often if clients who were emotionally capable of doing so were permitted to question freely and let their curiosity range. I totally agree. And absolutely on my part. And I think that uh, that's one of the warning signals that a, 
that the buyer better beware of uh, when the therapist of sorts tells that uh, patient that uh, they need to uh, relax their defenses or let go or do some kind of strange uh, behavior with them, that should be a signal uh, that it's not appropriate therapy. Well, what schools of therapy encourage questioning? Well, you know, throughout the history of psychotherapy, uh, the, uh, the, there has always been a didactic uh, component, uh, whether it was the Rogerian therapy of the 50s or whether it was, uh, you know, the Harry Stack Sullivan interpersonal therapy of the mm. 30s and 40s, and certainly uh, more than ever in history, the, the, the more recent uh, cognitive behavioral therapies are very, very patient-oriented, very patient-focused. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you very much. We are virtually out of time. I have a curious email here. This will go to you, I think, Zach. Are you discussing Dr. Braun in the Gale case at Rush tonight? Dr. Braun was released from the case, and none of his professional insurance policy proceeds went to the settlement. The suit was settled by other parties, and then uh, this, uh, uh, this listener <coughs> names another doctor whose name I won't use right now, but some of her malpractice coverage went to settle that lawsuit, she says. There was a, there were a variety of uh, people that paid into that settlement. What is the Gale case? Uh, th that's the, uh, the, the recent case. That's the woman we just heard yes, from. Yes, yes, and, yeah. and Bennett Broad did contribute to that settlement. He did? Yes, his insurance policy did. Well, then, did Dr. Roberta Sachs also? Yes. That's the other, that's the other yes. person named here? Yes. And still other physicians? Yes. Were they all in a combined practice? Is that the idea? Uh, well, one of them who contributed was a... Uh, was a person that came in from out of state to do the Greek letter programming or deprogramming, uh, he has a particular belief that the Satanists utilize the Greek alphabet in order to program their Good victims. And That's really a folly artus, I think, yeah. on the part of psychiatrists. Um, we are out of time. Gentlemen, thank you most sincerely for joining us. Our guests have been Zachary Bravos, uh, who is a lawyer active in malpractice operations of the sort that we've been talking about tonight. Dr. Herzl Spiro, a psychiatrist uh, who is, has, is the former director of mental health for Milwaukee County, many other uh, significant medical offices that he has filled, and Dr. Roger P. Hatcher, who is clinical psychologist in practice in Aurora, Illinois. A few quick words about programs to come, something quite special tomorrow night. Um, the, um, the case of Shabti Tzvi, the Jewish Messiah of the 17th century, is not well known beyond Judaic circles, but it is one of the most fascinating accounts of a messianic religious movement uh, which came a cropper and produced great devastating consequences. Matt Goldish, a, an historian from Ohio State University, has done a book titled The Sabbatean Prophets. He'll be our guest tomorrow night, as will Professor Yochanan Petrovsky-Stern, who is professor of history at Northwestern University and also studies matters of this sort. That's what will be coming tomorrow night. Until then, thanks to all for listening and a cordial good night.